there, and welcome to Pound the Rock, the Scores NBA podcast. I am Joe Wolfond. It has been a minute. I apologize for that. Uh, I was on vacation. Now Cash is on vacation. Uh, so we haven't connected for a while, but I do have a replacement for Cash today. He's just back from vacation himself. He's uh, appearing on this podcast for, I think, the fourth time now. A repeat guest. He goes by many names. You may know him as the Slop King, the Sultan of Slop, J. Robert Sloppenheimer, <laughs> or you may know him as Trill Bro Dude, the charismatic host of the You Know Ball podcast. I have roped him into talking about his favorite subject on this episode with us, the Philadelphia 76ers. Trill, how you doing, man? I'm doing doing well uh refreshed after my vacation it's really funny i feel like every time i come on the podcast it has been at least somewhat james harden related i believe the first time i ever came on the podcast was after we traded for him or just before we traded for him i can't remember but either way i'm excited to be back and happy to talk about the six it look Here's the thing. People keep asking me, like, are you sick of it? And of course I'm sick of it. We talk about it all the time on my podcast. I go on a ton of other podcasts to talk about it. But I'm just glad that we had something to talk about in August because I this is my first time doing it full time during the offseason, like as my job. And during August, there's really just nothing to talk about. And at least they gave us a little bit of entertainment in that in that dry month. And uh, now we're into September and we, we're still talking about it. So I look forward to the next six months of talking about this until they trade about the deadline. Yeah, uh, I am assuming that our listeners don't really need a refresher on the subject matter that Trill is referring to in terms of the, the talking head fodder that James Harden provided. Uh, during his what, what was it an adidas promotional tour in asia well he was there promoting his wine i know oh, his, okay. his, his gin, uh, which I, I personally i'm i'm a, a red wine fan it's actually not bad for industrial random bottle of wine that you'll grab at the store for 15 bucks uh they have a lot they had a lot of it in philly i'd imagine they're not restocking that right now so i drank it a few times but he was there he saw the only reason i know this is because later that day on a stream he sold like I think they said that he sold like 100,000 bottles of wine in one day in China. So, yeah, he's the, he, he, I think he was promoting a few different things. But when he said it, it was actually at like a charity event, I believe, uh, for some children's charity. So I thought it was really funny that he called out Daryl Morey uh, at a, a, <laughs> a children's charity event in China, which certainly, if you know Daryl Morey's history, uh, a good audience for uh to spit some Daryl Morey slander because he's he doesn't have a ton of of fans in China. Oh my god. Um yeah, there's a lot to unpack there obviously, but I'll just take this back to something my esteemed co-host Joe Cash likes to say about James Harden, which is that he manages to create leverage in these situations through chaos. And so I don't know if he's going to be able to really do that this time, but in a situation where he has opted into the final year of his deal, he put his trust, I guess, in Daryl Morey and the Sixers front office to then trade him somewhere that he wanted to go. Unfortunately, there just doesn't seem to be that much of an appetite for his services around the league. 
And I, I said this to Cash at the time, as soon as we started hearing these reports that the Clippers were, you know, moderately interested, but weren't willing to include Terrence Mann in a deal. I was like, all right, well, this isn't happening yeah. at least until training camp. And it's probably going to drag into the start of the season because if a team like the Clippers, you know, not only being Harden's preferred destination, but being, I think, clearly the team that he would make the most sense for other than Philly, obviously, if they're not willing to part with, by the way, I think this is fucking insane. Yeah. But, and I thought it was insane even at the trade deadline when they were reportedly not willing to trade Terrence Mann for Fred Van Vliet. Sure. And, and now we're talking about James Harden, who, you know, probably an even better fit for what the Clippers need. I, I just don't see how anything is realistically going to get done anytime soon, if at all. So here is James Harden now trying to create more leverage through chaos uh, by, you know, doing this, this world tour announcing that Daryl Morey is a liar. And I guess clarifying later that he was specifically talking about Morey not immediately working to trade him after he did opt into the last year of that deal and, and, you know, having purportedly promised to do so and, and not having anything to do allegedly, I guess with, you know, Harden basically taking less money when he resigned last off season, right. Uh, in order to allow them to sign PJ Tucker and Daniel house, and then not making him whole with, uh, with a new contract this off season. So that would have opened up a whole other can of worms. Like there was the NBA probe into that to try and see if there was any cap circumvention going on. Twice, by the way, this is the, the second time that they <laughs> right. because last off season when they, they did dock them the two second round picks for, but that was yeah. for Daniel House and PJ Tucker. It wasn't yes. for James Harden or anything related to his contract. So right. that was the thing that I, I mean. My understanding of it is I I was explained some some cap people and people that understand kind of the history of of this stuff explained to me that the reason why James Harden immediately came out and said, actually it was about me opting in now and them telling me he was going to trade me was because if he had essentially done what, you know, everyone, the famous incident that everyone remembers is the Joe Smith incident with the Minnesota Timberwolves about 20 years ago when, you know, they kind of ruined the Kevin Garnett era by promising Joe Smith a contract, circumventing the salary cap. And if that were the case with the Sixers this year, James Harden would actually have his contract voided and there would be no way for him to get paid because he would lose his bird rights and he would be free to sign with any team that he would like. But the issue would then be there's no teams with salary cap space left and there's also no way the Sixers can sign and trade him or get him the money that he clearly wants. So that being the case is obviously the reason that Harden immediately came out and said, Hey, actually I meant, I think probably his agent explained to him, Hey, we can't say anything, whether that did happen or not. And I have a, I have a sneaking suspicion that there was at least a little bit of a wink, wink deal, but I don't think that, I think that Daryl Morey was smart enough to not put anything in email or on paper so yeah. that they basically have no proof and it's just his word versus the Sixers. So because James Harden has uh, an invested interest in that not being the case, uh, I think the other the other angle that you could take is, well, he told me if we opted in, he would trade me, and now he's not going to trade me. And as you said, the market 
the market obviously doesn't exist right now. And I think a big wrinkle in this that not a lot of people are talking about, but I think probably the biggest, most damning thing on James Harden's trade value is the fact that if he does get traded, so let's say like another team swoops in, right? It's not the Clippers, not the team that he wants to go to. Let's say like, let's just say your Raptors, for example, were to want to trade for James Harden. Well, the issue is he can extend because of the contract that he is on. So if you are to trade for James Harden, you are 100% trading for a rental and a rental with a guy who has a history of going to teams and within a year or two, not wanting to be there and then getting his way out. So even if you're the Clippers, even though I think you're right in that, if you just look at it on its face in terms of value, like Fred Van Fleet was a more valuable player than Terrence Mann. And, you know, they would have had to pay him. But also, if you're the Clippers, you kind of backed yourselves into a corner with the team that you've constructed right now because your two best players are getting to the age and the injury level where you need to win now or it's kind of over. And I think you need to be more aggressive with these win now type move, whether it's trading for a Fred Van Fleet type or a James Harden. But even with them, I understand why they don't want to give up value because there's no other teams that are interested in Harden. He wants to go there. And then on top of that, they can't extend him. So if he goes there, it's a disaster season and he walks for nothing in free agency next off season. Then, you know, you gave up whatever few assets you have left, whether that's, you know, Terrence Mann or any of the other younger prospects on their team, even though Terrence Mann is, not really that young, by the way. He turns 20, I believe he turns 27 this month. Yes. <laughs> Which is another wrinkle that people aren't really talking about. They're kind of talking about him like he's Tyrese Maxey's age when he's actually, you know, closer to Tobias Harris's age. <laughs> yeah. uh, but my whole point on this, and 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 older than D'Anthony Melton, someone on the Sixers, almost two years older than D'Anthony Melton, I believe, someone on the Sixers I never hear called a, a young prospect. But at the same time, what I'm trying to say here is I understand from the Clippers' perspective why they don't want to give up a ton of value since the market doesn't exist. They have very few things remaining. And then the other wrinkle that everyone keeps talking about is the fact that they're opening up a new stadium arena in a year. And if that's the case then who are they going to have to put in front of the fans, right? Oh, you got to have Terrence Mann there to put sure. in front of those new fans in, in well, Inglewood. You know, you got to have him hanging up on the banner outside the arena, you know, the the the, the fringe starter. <laughs> Guy who you only played like 20 minutes a game last year and uh, basically yeah. have, have, have forced in and out of the rotation for years. But yeah, but ultimately all this comes down to is the Clippers know that, that – uh, they're the only team and they know that um, they know that they kind of need to nail whatever the next move is. And they think that that Harden will cause enough chaos that between now and the trade deadline that they'll get him for pennies on the dollar. And to that, I say, good luck. We know Daryl Morey's history. I think yeah. like we, we know that he's willing to get awkward. We know he's willing to kind of sink half a season in order to not lose a trade. And whether that's a, a good thing or a bad thing, it is just the reality of the situation. Well, and I think just given what we've heard about what is actually out there for Harden, and even if it were to be Terrence Mann coming back as like the best player or the centerpiece of that kind of deal, I'm not going to say the Sixers season is sunk regardless, but like 
it's a negligible enough difference between getting that back for half a season and just sitting on your hands and waiting to see what develops that I just don't think the incentive is there for him to move on this. And that's why from the Clippers perspective, I'm like, yeah, I get you feel like you have the Sixers over a barrel here because there is no market. And, you know, he said that he's not going to go back and play there. So just give him to us and we'll give you back whatever we feel like giving you back. Like maybe that's kind of true, but at the same time, it's like you're you're on a clock too. And just getting this precious about a player who is like, yeah, a nice young-ish two-way player, he is still a low-usage role-playing wing on a team that has a bazillion wings and desperately, desperately needs a lead guard who can take some of that playmaking load off of Kawhi and PG. Like, it's right there for you. And yeah, it could go bad and you could, you know, he could walk and you could wind up with nothing, I guess. But like, I don't know, you 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 said it. They've backed themselves into this corner. Like you roll the dice on that 10 times out of 10. So I just don't, I don't really get it from their perspective aside from just playing hardball for the sake of it. Yeah, and the Terrence Mann thing is like, I, I don't, once again, you're right in that the Sixers, the Sixers did the same thing with Ben Simmons a few years ago when they were getting even offers for better players than Terrence Mann. Like, and, and I mean, I remember offers, some of the offers that were confirmed were more, you know, your Jeremy Grants, your Malcolm Brogdon's, who all things considered are better players than, than a Terrence Mann. And Maury had the same approach then, which was these players don't move the needle for the championship window. And we're not going to make that move. On the other side of that, though, you could argue if the Sixers go, I mean, I personally think the Sixers championship window is closed. I think when they lost game six against Boston, that was it. I think if they had won that game, I think they would have had a, a legit shot to at least make the finals. And then everything that happens now is completely different because you would have, you know, an Eastern Conference finals appearance at, at a minimum, if not an NBA finals appearance. Uh, and you can kind of, you know, look at the James Harden, Joel Embiid Sixers a little bit differently. But now, because they lost that game six, they lost the series to Boston. I think that they just they've had their shots. And I wonder what the team's goals are moving forward, because Joel Embiid is really and I'm sure we'll talk about that. But Joel Embiid's kind of window, his kind of prime, whatever is left of it. How long do you want to hold on to him is the question for me, because if your goal is just to, you know, from ownership's perspective, get people in seats and be remain competitive and make the playoffs, then you want to keep Joel Embiid as long as possible. And even though on a on paper level on, you know, Terrence Mann might not make a difference or whoever you get back from the Clippers might not make a difference, but on a human level, you're now for the second time in three seasons. And yes, they did win the Simmons Harden deal because Simmons has barely played and they really didn't give up much else uh, in that trade because both of the players that they gave up have left the Nets now. And one of their picks turned out to be a late first that really was not that. Uh, it was like the 27th pick in the draft. They traded it to Utah for a swap in the Royce O'Neal deal. But I, I look at this whole thing and I say, while on paper you might have won that deal, you punted on that season like you did. The reality is that James Harden came in and was great for the first five to ten games, 
fell off a little bit because of some age and injury things. And then in the playoffs had the same James Harden experience where, you know, you get two or three games that are really incredible when the shot is falling. And then other than that, it is, you know, a lot of really bad performances. And with Joel's injury that year, combined with the fact that the team just didn't have enough chemistry or depth to really kind of build a championship level team, that was a pun on the season. I mean, if you look at the history of the NBA, even Kevin Durant was traded halfway through the year this year and they didn't win the title. And the, I think the last all-star that was traded in season was Clyde Drexler that a- ended up winning a title on the team that he was traded to. And by the way, the Houston Rockets were the defending champions and had a crazy run that we haven't seen uh, something like quite, quite like that since. So my point on this is that if you do the Ben Simmons situation again and you say either sit out or play and we'll find a deal eventually then I think that you're really telling Joel Embiid hey second time of three seasons during your prime we're punting essentially because even if you pull off a brilliant trade at the deadline I don't think there's a trade out there that's going to make you championship contenders or at least legit like be like maybe you'll make the conference finals but I think that ultimately you're probably going to end up in the same situation that you were in. And what kind of message does that send to your best player? So that's kind of how I look at it. It's like you have to remove some of the winning on paper stuff for the human emotional element of it all. Yeah, for sure. And I I do want to talk about a lot of the winning on paper stuff as well. We can get into that. But I, I kind of want to take a second to just reflect on... This is going to sound strange, but just seeing that video of Harden calling Daryl Morey a liar weirdly made me sad because I think of, you know, the Morey Harden partnership is like maybe the most interesting GM and player partnership that we've seen in the NBA, at least in the modern NBA. And they're so intertwined their careers, right? Like the Harden trade in Houston and the, the team that Morey built around Harden there and the principles that he adopted and was sort of able to enact on a basketball court through the vehicle that was James Harden, like it was such a perfect marriage. And it lasted for, you know, nearly a decade in Houston. Maury goes to Philly, almost immediately sets about trying to bring Harden there and then finally does. And to see it end like this, I don't know. It just, it made me a little bit melancholy and it's, pointless to kind of like place blame or or decide like how or if this could have played out differently but I just had a weirdly like viscerally somber reaction to seeing that and I don't know if that it affected you in any kind of similar way or if you're just like ready to be done with all of this but <laughs> well, <laughs> but it's, uh yeah it, it's funny to me because I I actually remember when we were tr- we were talking about okay who should they trade for because it was either Harden or at the time, and look, the Sixers will deny this now. It was either Halliburton or Fox, I think, were the two guys that they were choosing uh, between. It was either Harden or those two. And it's easy to say now, well, obviously you would take Halliburton or Fox. But at the time, the Sixers were looking at it like we have this championship window. Joel Embiid's in the middle of his prime. Tyrese Maxey is rising. His fit with De'Aaron Fox isn't great. They didn't know, uh, you know, kind of how good I think Tyrese Halliburton would be so fast. Uh, I think if anyone knew, you know, I was on board with trading for all three, any uh, any of the three, essentially. I think I ranked it Harden one and then Halliburton two and Fox three. But 
I ultimately knew that Daryl Morgan was going to trade for James Harden if he was available because, like you said, that's been his guy for a decade plus. He is a numbers guy. The proof is in the numbers. But at the same time, it, he kind of it, – it's kind of confusing to me because you – you want this, he has this new plan about like flexibility and like all this stuff, but I, I'm just kind of surprised that he actually had the balls to really do this and not pay Harden uh, because of the fact that you said like their relationship has been what it is for so long and Harden has always been his guy. And it's really funny because Sixers fans after game six and seven were like, all right, we're done with Harden. Like, I think a lot of them were, it was the first time I saw a lot of people mad at Joel Embiid in a way that I haven't seen before the frustration kind of reaching a peak with him as well. But Harden was kind of, you know, after his performances in game six and seven, people were completely done with him here in Philly. But the mindset was, well, but Daryl Morey's going to give him the money anyway because it's his guy, right? Yeah. And for the first time, even though Morey's always had this kind of reputation as like a backstabbing kind of, you know, he's a liar. Like I know like Morey, Harden saying Daryl Morey's a liar is true, objectively true. Daryl Morey has lied his entire career, most famously with Chris Paul when he was on the Rockets and he told him a few days before he traded him, we're not going to trade you. And then yeah. they ended up trading him. Uh, there have been plenty of instances where it's the Maury... nature of the job. Like if you're yeah, a GM exactly. and you're not out here telling lies, then you're doing it wrong. Exactly. And I mean, Maury, Maury's funny to me because he takes it. He loves to take it even further than it probably should go. Like he's talking like with, with the media now and he's like, oh, no, there was never like a Tyrese Halliburton trade that could have possibly happened. OK, fine. And he's also saying like, oh, you know, we saw a guy. He can't say the names of the players, but he's like, you know, we saw a guy here that played in Philly for a college team. Uh, and we tried to move up for him on draft night. This was after Cam Whitmore won summer league MVP. So like those guys, like he loves to take it even further than he needs to take it with the lies. But, but, but the whole Harden Mori relationship to me, I'm, I'm just still kind of in shock that he just didn't pay him because even though the logical Mori brained calculator efficiency brain guy would say this guy is declining he's getting older he's you know he had multiple performances in the playoffs where he just didn't show up in the biggest moments and we should probably explore our other options even though that might sound like the logical thing the emotional attachment with Harden and Maury I figured surpassed that because even though Harden had his performances like he did in the playoffs and, uh, you know, games one and four, I got to give him credit in the Celtic series were really what kept the Sixers in that series. But the other games were so bad where the floor just completely dropped out. And he was honestly not even good in the net series uh, in the first round when we were playing, uh, you know, a very young athletic team that I figured Maury would be able to say, look, look at the regular season numbers. He should have been all an all star. He probably was near all NBA level in terms of production and statistical output. But he finally kind of cut it cut it off and I, I it doesn't really make me sad just because I have uh I guess I have more personally invested in like the Sixers success now and I kind of viewed it as like you were damned if you do damned if you don't uh kind of thing and I felt like there was no way I mean look 
I probably would have talked myself into the team because I have to cover the team now. But the majority of people that I talked to here were like, I'm done with this team. Like, I'm not, I'm not, I can't talk myself back into them. And from a business perspective, the ownership probably wants to, you know, have something new to sell to the team. And at the end of the day, Maury's in this, he has job security himself. He he only has two years left on his deal. He's looking, trying to get a contract extension. And if you're trying to sell the same thing over and over to ownership and Harden's aging and you just paid him a ton of money, it's going to be really hard to get that extension a year from now. Yeah, so that was going to be my next question for you is like, if you had your druthers, because you're already, you know, talking about the Sixers championship window being closed, you know, whether Harden's there or not, I guess. But is this the way that, not the specifics of it and like it playing out publicly and and the Sixers not having a ton of leverage in this situation, but in terms of just them not paying Harden, and moving on from him. Is that the preferable outcome for you than them just sort of biting the bullet and paying up and and trying to keep this thing going? Like if you're talking about the alternative here basically being we have to start thinking about trading Joel Embiid as opposed to, I don't know, let's give this a couple more kicks at the can with Harden here. Is this the way that you would have rather seen it shake out? I mean, I, I was kind of 50-50 on it. I probably lean towards, I, I mean, I thought he was just going to walk for nothing. Like mm-hmm. that was the whole thing was like I was worried that they were going to lose him and get literally nothing back and I was like you can't let that happen. But if the alternative is let's make a trade and maybe get a rotation player and a first round pick and put ourselves in the same situation uh you know next offseason that the team wants with this flexibility and cap space which I I'm even I even question the validity of that. Yeah. But ultimately, I I do think that, like, I I, I look at it like this. First off, I just want to say, even beyond the Harden stuff and what what has driven me the most insane about Daryl Morey since he's become the Sixers GM, despite making a lot of really good moves, is the fact that when there is a big move like this, whether it's the Harden move, the Simmons move, whatever, those off-seasons, there's no other activity. So they'll sign veteran minimums, guys. They won't use their exceptions if they have any. They won't make any other really meaningful trades or or anything that kind of moves the needle for the team. And because of that, because he's so focused on the big moves, it's like now look at the Sixers roster and they have no wings. Like their best wings are Tobias Harris, who was good last year. But if he's your best wing, you're probably, you know, not doing great. And PJ Tucker, who is now 38 years old. Um, and then they're going to have DeAnthony Melton playing some wing, I believe mm-hmm. next year, Nick nurse has talked a little bit about that. So I kind of look at it like if there were other moves the team could make, and then also they could recoup value for Harden, I would feel a lot better about the team moving forward than I do currently, because I, once again, like I, I think the, 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 the Harden and bead thing as great as it is in, in the regular season, I just don't know if you can have two stars who are so inconsistent in the playoffs and win anything meaningful. Like the fact that, like I said, Harden's ceiling is very high when the shot is falling, especially when the three balls going in early and the floor is he's the worst player on the court for two or three <laughs> games in a series yeah. and on both ends. And, uh, and then Joel, Joel, even though part of it is, 
you know, the injuries and whatever, but you've talked about it before. I've talked about it before. It's built into the Joel Embiid experience. Like mm. he will be hurt in the playoffs, regardless of, you know, the, the severity of those injuries or, or whatever, whether it's like a torn meniscus or a broken face or whatever, there's always something in the playoffs where he is hurt and you have to factor that in. So I guess now that they've, they, like I said, if they could recoup any value from the Harden situation, I would feel better about moving forward without James Harden because I think that this is going to force Tyrese Maxey to be a little bit more on the ball. It's going to force him to become the lead guard that we need him to become. And if he makes a leap to all-star or at least in the all-star, the fringes of the all-star conversation, and then we're sitting here a year from now and the team has a bunch of cap space and they can actually do something with that cap space, I'll feel a lot better. But at the end of the day, it is hard to kind of talk yourself into a team when Joel's 29, he's turning 30 during the season. He has a history of injuries. We talked about how we can't stay healthy in the playoffs. And as much as I love Tyrese Maxey, you have to have a guy who's good enough to be the best player on a championship team. And despite his inconsistencies, despite his playoff kind of failures and, and shortcomings so far in his career, Joel's the only thing that we have that is close to the best player on a championship team. So if you're arguing from the other side of why we should keep Harden is, is that, is that, you know, you're still trying to maximize uh, the Joel Embiid years. And if you're paying, if you paid Harden a four year, oh my God, we're paying him four years, we're paying him $50 million. How are we ever going to? Well, if the team sucks again next year with Harden or without Harden, Joel's probably asking out anyway. So I really don't think that money matters. So, like I said, I could have looked at it either way. I just personally would rather see the team try to take a fresher approach, put Maxi on the ball, be more creative with the offense, hopefully with Nick Nurse. And and hope that a year from now you can kind of reconfigure and, and figure it out. But like I said, I, I would prefer to try to compete this year and keep that flexibility for next year if possible. Yeah, and I mean, in regards to maximizing what's left of Embiid's prime, this is why, like, it was a complicated question for me too, and I wrote about it after the season, uh, or the Sixers season ended. Man, Harden had a lot to do with maximizing Embiid. He had a lot to do with Embiid winning sure. MVP. Like this monster offensive season that Embiid had came in large part by just working the two-man game with Harden. Like the Harden to Embiid assist combination was the most prolific in the NBA by like a country mile. It was yep. Harden to Embiid, highest assist combo in the league by 89 assists over the next highest duo. And the Sixers offensive rating was like 121 with both of them on the floor, like plus nine per hundred possessions during the regular season. It, I, like, I think people forget because Jokic's insane offensive efficiency season, but Joel shot 55% from the floor and averaged 33 points a game. And like, that is unheard of. Like if, if it weren't for Jokic, just kind of casually what he shot, like 60 something percent and averaged like 25 a game. If it weren't for the fact that he's just like the most efficient, like, you know, score passer big we've seen Joel's numbers would have broken people's brains for a big and a large part of that was due to Harden because before this season I think it was only this was only the second time he shot over 50% from the field in his career mm -hmm. and the other season was two years ago and he barely shot over 50% so so yeah Harden the pick and roll just getting Joel in his spots he was a big part of why they were so successful especially offensively in the regular season 
Yeah, and just, I mean, completely allowed Embiid to transform his game, right? Like, it was so much less arduous for him. Like, fewer post-ups, like, less having to create for himself out of face-ups, and more just, like, catching the ball on the move within, like, 12 feet of the basket. And just, like, knowing that he was going to get the ball in the pocket, like, pretty much automatic every time. I think, and I even, like, you know, to your point about the impressiveness of his offensive season, I said this on this podcast when I made the case for him as MVP last year. I thought him averaging averaging 33 a game on like 65% true shooting, I thought it was basically just as impressive as Jokic going for, you know, 25 on 70% true shooting. Like the volume and efficiency was staggering. And I do think Harden played a huge part in that. And that is going to be very difficult to replicate. Um, and, and, you know, we don't need to rehash the playoffs and the ups and downs. I, I can definitely see it from both sides. But now I think they're in a really challenging spot. And we should talk about Maxi because I think he is like very much at the center of all of this in terms of like his ability to step into that role as a lead guard. And I'm curious what you think of his ability to do that kind of in short order, which is what the Sixers are going to be asking him to do. And then I also want to talk about the contract stuff with him because there's obviously a lot of implications to the Sixers neglecting to give him the extension that he's eligible for this offseason in the name of that cap flexibility that you've alluded to. So first off, like, yeah, in terms of him, him becoming that lead guard, obviously we know the playmaking is not going to be there on the level of a James Harden probably ever. Yeah. It's a completely different style of player. But, I mean, I think he's shown a lot of things that make you feel like he can do this. And I don't know if he can do it this season, but you know, maybe he can do enough this season to make the organization and Joel Embiid feel confident enough that he can do it soon enough that maybe the window isn't entirely closed here. So give me your thoughts on Tyrese Maxey, big picture, this upcoming season. What are we going to see from him? Well, first off, I think that the reason that Joel, like if the Sixers had not drafted Tyrese Maxey and they were in the current position that they were in, then I think that Joel would have already asked out. I mm. think that he would have looked at it like, all right, we missed our shot. You know, I need to explore what's best for me. I'm in the middle of my prime. I'm coming off. Even if he didn't win MVP last year, he would have came off three straight seasons of being, you know, runner up for MVP or a top three guy for MVP. And I think that the fact is that everything I've heard, I mean, Joel, and Maxi have been working out with Drew Hanlon this summer. He loves Maxi. He sees elite potential in him. He knows that Tyrese has the work ethic. The, the only thing that's ever going to hold back Tyrese is the is just whatever you know kind of shortcomings that he has that are just either physical or uh, parts of his games, like you said, the playmaking. Like the playmaking will never be in, at an elite level, but I don't think it necessarily has to be. I think that he can work because of the fact that he's so deadly off the ball. Working with a big like Joel, who is you know post heavy, elbow heavy kind of guy that you're going to run a ton of offense through. He's incredibly active off the ball and on the ball. While he isn't a crazy playmaker. Uh, a buddy of mine, NBA Couchside, Kevin, he had the, he has pulled some statistics that basically point to any time that either Joel or Harden are off the court, Maxi's uh, efficiency barely dips and his 
scoring goes up a ton and his assists actually go up a decent amount too. And he still doesn't turn the ball over. That's the one thing with Tyrese, like his, his kind of superpower, like obviously we've seen him become one of the best shooters in the NBA, which, you know, we all thought he was going to be a good shooter eventually because the touch was there from the line and the floater in his, uh, his college season and his rookie season, but becoming a mid forties, three point shooter on such insane, volume was not something that I don't, I think even the biggest Tyrese Maxey fans saw coming. So like you said, it's going to be need to be completely different in terms of how they run their offense. But like, I just need him to be able to get to the playmaking level where like, can he, can he be close to the playmaking level of like Bradley Beal? Or even if you want to go like a higher level, maybe like a Jamal Murray type where like, if you look statistically at those guys early in their career, they kind of have very similar numbers to Tyrese. Now, obviously, efficiency's gone up. It's easier for, for uh, you know, scoring in, in the last few years and those kind of things. But Tyrese's numbers, when those guys are off the court, what he has shown when those guys don't play sometimes. Like, the Sixers had a record at one point last year without Joel. They were like, I, I want to say, like, 9-4. and four. And Maxie was a big part of that. Like, anytime Joel was out, anytime Harden was out, he was able to step up, run a little bit more offense. They ran plays for him on the ball, off the ball. And I, I just think that his combination of speed, touch, and his work ethic will make him be the best player that he possibly can be. And I think, at least in theory, that's a fantastic player to put with Joel Embiid as your second guy. Like... If you want to, you know, obviously, like you said, like, I think that the, you would want the playmaking to be a little bit better just because Joel honestly is probably of any superstar player in the NBA. Joel's the worst playmaker, I would say, uh, which is not great if you're trying to run, which is why I think a large part of why the Sixers half court offense struggles a lot in the playoffs. But like I said, I think that the coaching staff needs to get this new coaching staff hopefully will get more creative than Doc Rivers staff in terms of unlocking Maxi. And even like, like I, I've looked at on offs in terms of, okay, what does Maxi do when it's just him? There's no Joel, there's no Harden. And, and look, the Sixers team this last year, I actually think I've said, I think the Sixers team was different. I think they, they happened to get cold at the wrong time shooting wise. I think that they had a lot more talent than previous Sixers teams outside of that 2018, 2019 team. And I thought they were good enough to win the title, but when Baxi was the best player on the court and uh, you know, those two were off the court, the, the team still had a 117 offensive rating, which is pretty good if you look at players in the same kind of ilk as Maxi. Even a guy like Jamal Murray, who you know is obviously a playoff riser and a monster, his his uh, the Nuggets' offensive rating without Jokic and just Murray in the regular season was like one eleven. So I think that Maxi, in a, in a way that isn't quite as like as much of a lead guard as we picture, because we when we think of lead guards, we think of guys who dominate the ball, who are, you know, running a hundred pick and rolls a game and doing kind of the stuff that the heliocentric stuff that we've come accustomed to over the past few years. But I think that Maxi, because of his ability to not just, you know, handle the ball occasionally, his ability to be one of the best off ball players in the NBA 
as a scoring guard, I think that that that's going to be kind of the the uh, the thing that potentially unlocks him as the second guy and makes it so that the Sixers offense. I don't think the Sixers offense in the regular season is going to be as good without a, an engine type playmaker that can also score like James Harden. But I do think that they could see less of a dip than people think. And I think that like th- there's potential for them to still be a competitive team in the Eastern Conference if they they have to make other moves, though. Like I said, like I just don't see this team being anything more than a first round playoff out if uh, unless Maxi takes a leap that I'm just completely not prepared for. I mean, they were a pretty competitive team that season when. Simmons was holding out, you know, before they traded for Harden. And that was with a lesser version of Maxi than the one they're going to get this season. And him turning into one of straight up the best shooters in the NBA is like, I think undersold in terms of just like when we talk about him, it's all about his explosiveness, his speed, like that stuff pops off the screen. But like this dude is one of the best shooters in the league, like 39% on pull-ups last season, something like 45% off of the catch. And in terms of, you know, when you talk about his numbers with Embiid and Harden off the floor, the pull-up shooting is really the thing to me that has allowed that to sustain his efficiency while the scoring volume increases. Like, that's just... His shooting development over the last couple of years has been absolutely unbelievable to me, especially when you pair that with just the straight line speed, the finishing ability, and the fact that he has that floater game. Like, he really is a three-level scorer. And I think he's gotten to a point too where like his understanding of pacing, his ability to modulate that pace and change gears has been a big boon as well. I think he's like, he's got huge, like, you know, 25, 26, 27 point a game type of potential. And he looks like the kind of guy who can do it efficiently because of his ability to shoot and because of what that means for how you have to defend him. Like a guy with that kind of a first step who you have to close out on is just a nightmare. There's nothing you can do with that. And and like to your point about him being able to do it on or off ball, I, there are not many guys, if any, in the league who are better at just doing like the go and catch thing where you're playing on the wing, like maybe nail help comes or a double comes. If anybody is straying off of him, like A, you know you got to close back out hard because he's got a quick release and he can knock down those catch and shoot threes again at like 45%. But... As soon as you make your move to close out on him, he is past you and he can be on top of the rim in like a second. So the scoring package to me is like on its way to being elite, elite, elite. It's just a question of, okay, if he is your lead guard, if the ball is in his hands this frequently and you're having to run an offense in the half court, what is that going to look like when he's kind of asked to do that? You know, not just in spot minutes with Harden and Embiid on the bench, but like all the time. Exactly. It it is a big, you know, when you're the number one guy on the scouting report and, you know, you get the tougher defensive assignments because even though uh, Maxi at times has had tough defensive assignments, the majority of the time those have been going to other guys early in his career. It's going to be a completely different dynamic like that. But like, as I said, I'm just not going to bet against him because I don't really, I think that if anything, like you said, I think that I might've even as has I've been like the number one maxi fan from the day from before we drafted him, he was like top five on my board of guys that I really wanted in that draft, uh, regardless of where the Sixers were picking. I think that I might've even undersold his progression and how far he's come so far in his career. Because if you look at the history of guys who eventually become all-star level guards, 
they all make progression from year one to year two to year three. And Maxi has certainly hit those statistical indicators of, of a guy who's going to become a star guard in the future. But the context is going to be completely different now. The context is going to be, okay, you're, you know, other than even, even that second season when it, like you said, it was a lesser version of Maxi and he made that massive leap and he was, he became this fun, young kind of, you know, seemingly future star guard. They still had, funny enough, they still had Seth Curry who took a lot of pressure off of him because the fact that he had so much synergy with Joel running dribble handoffs and kind of kind of alleviating some of that pressure so that Maxi didn't have to be on the ball quite so much. But I think that the 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 thing that that really is like from everything I've heard about Maxi, like every like every coach, every teammate, every like every person, like I, I might be buying into a little bit of the narrative that has been sold, but like everyone says he works incredibly hard. And he's just like the most like curious player and he's like way beyond his years in terms of how like how his work ethic and kind of whatever uh, player he can become, he will become that. Like I said, I think the only thing that will stop him will be the physical and possibly like the like if he is your lead decision maker on the ball those kind of things that you really can't kind of overcome uh, at least this early in your career. So he's 22 going on 23. I think that if he is to become the player that he's going to become, we're going to see another progression. Like I think that he easily could be in the most improved conversation next year, just because the statistical output is obviously going to have to go up if Harden doesn't play or if he plays and is kind of, you know, half-assing it yeah. uh i think you could see Put, that putting lead. the fat suit back on and exactly yeah 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 like you know we're talking about a guy that like could potentially be close to 50 40 90 on 25 points a game and if that is the case and you get him more on ball reps and he's still you know this high assist to turn he doesn't get a ton of assists but he doesn't turn the ball over so like he's always going to be and i can see why daryl Morey likes him a lot because i think he's going to be a stati- an analytical darling He's going to be incredibly efficient from scoring at all three levels, especially from three, which is obviously something that Daryl Morey loves. And he doesn't turn the ball over. And I think that he will become an improved defender over time as well. I think that he showed some things in the playoffs that I would like in that Celtic series. I really thought that he hung for most of the series in a way that I was like, he's going to get exposed. We're not going to be able to play him as much as we, we should be able to. But he he really hung, especially in, in some of the biggest moments of that series on the on the defensive end. Yeah, that was a big eye-opener for me in the playoffs was how much he was able to hang, especially in that series where you're playing against a team that is pretty much designed to exploit players exactly like that on defense. Like, Boston is a team that doesn't run a ton of, like, small big pick-and-roll. They want to run inverted pick-and-roll for their big wing creators, and, like, who better to attack than, like, an undersized, somewhat slender guard on the other team where... He's so important to their offense. Like the best thing you can do is try to make him a liability at the other end. And they couldn't really do it. And so I wrote about this actually before that game seven, because it was really interesting to me as like a potential swing factor. Obviously it didn't <laughs> wind up playing out <laughs> that way, but like what had interested me was that usually the way that you'll see teams, including the Sixers play this when the small guys get dragged into those actions with like big wing playmakers is they'll play the hedge and recover game and just try and slow up the ball handler's progress, but then recover to your individual assignment. So you're not leaving that guy on an Island. 
And what they started doing with Maxi in that series was just straight up switching him onto Brown and Tatum. And he was really holding his own. And so like, I have a friend who has access to the second spectrum data because I was really curious about this. And when the Sixers were hedging those ball screen actions, sorry, there's an air show going on in the background. It's <laughs> no really wonderful. Um, when they were hedging those ball screen actions, Celtics were scoring something like 1.2 points per possession. But when they were switching it, it was like 0.7. Like he was holding up just fine on those switches because he's, he's strong and he's long and he like moves his feet pretty well. I think his understanding, like his technique and his positioning with on-ball defense has gotten a lot better. The screen navigation, I think, could still use a bit of work, but like Yeah, that's always been that's I feel like that's the thing with like every star guard though. Is like there are very few star yeah. guards that I'm like I feel like even when we're talking about guys who have reputations of being better defenders, they the 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 uh screen navigation is always kind of a a concern for those guys. But Maxi, you could see it. there was a game against the Warriors earlier this year. Uh that was one of my favorite games of the season, just because it was actually probably, even though Joel statistically wasn't as dominant as he was against like the Celtics late in the season and the Jazz earlier, it was my favorite Joel game of the season. And the a team like the Warriors just ran Maxi through like a hundred ball screens in that game, and he was dying on on screens and he couldn't get around them. And Jordan Poole and Clay and Curry were hitting all these threes, and I was like. That's something that I can live with. I think that it's something that hopefully over time he can get uh, better with. But like you said, like the the switching the on ball stuff kind of uh, and, and he's gotten stronger over the years. The fact that he could hold his own in that series kind of blew my mind. But the yeah, the ball, nav- the screen navigation is, 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 has been really concerning at times. Yeah. And it's interesting to me, too, because the thought of obviously I don't know what Harden's ultimately going to get traded for and how that might reshape the starting lineup. But let's say he's starting next to Melton instead of next to Harden. It's like, on the one hand, that maybe makes his job easier on defense. You got, like, better insulation. But on the other hand, it probably means that you're going to be targeted even more because there isn't another target on the floor beside you. So I think we'll we'll continue to learn a lot more about how how good he can actually be defensively when, uh, you know, when we see him playing next to defensive players that aren't as attackable maybe as James Harden was, so... Yeah. Um, and if the offensive role goes up, we always know the offensive. Yeah. It's just hard to be even with Maxi's endurance and his ability to play 40 minutes in a game. It's just really hard to be, you know, a, a guy that is running a ton of offense on one end and then also be completely passable on defense on the other. And especially if you're the weakest link on the floor. Yeah. Yeah. It's it's inevitable. It happens to everybody. But yeah, I, a huge season for him coming up, which. I mean, we just have to talk about the contract thing because I think he's done enough to this point to, in my mind, merit the max extension. I thought the Sixers were just going to give it to him. Yeah. I didn't think they'd they'd get cute with it, but they are seemingly getting cute with it. They're not going to give him that extension. I don't think. I mean, the deadline is still like six weeks out, so maybe they'll come to an agreement between now and then, but the expectation seems to be that they're not going to. And... That there is very likely, you know, communication between his camp and the Sixers front office and some kind of wink-wink agreement that they're going to give him the full bag or something close to it when he becomes an RFA next summer. The the two issues that I see with that, I mean, one, obviously, Daryl Morey is a liar, so why would Max <laughs> believe anything that he says? But the, the other one really is, 
just, just that free agency kind of isn't a thing anymore. Sure. And like looking at the 2024 class, I mean, at one point in time, it was going to be headlined by like Anthony Davis, Jalen Brown, you know, DeJounte Murray, all these guys that have now extended. I guess there's still the LeBron pipe dream, if you want to dream on that. And like Siakam, I don't know what the hell the Raptors are doing with him, but he is still an impending free agent. Like there will be some options, but I'm just not sure that having that cap flexibility does quite as much for a team like Philly, which has never been a huge free agent draw as it seems like it's going to. And to me, at the time when I heard this, that they were doing like that, they were going to wait it out. I was like, that makes sense. And then as I thought about it more, I kind of just felt like, I don't know, why bother? Like, why leave anything to chance? Uh, but I don't know. Where, where are you at with that? Well, people told me about this a year before, and I was like, teams don't do this anymore. Like, remember the Bam out of bio thing with Giannis? It was like, oh, well, Bam, they're just going to wait to extend Bam, and they're going to make a run at Giannis and free agent. Well, Giannis signs the extension, and and he had the same agent as Bam, so they had inside information that that wasn't going to be the case. But that was like the last circumstance I could remember where a team was like, maybe we just won't extend this guy. Like, even guys that aren't quite as good get extended in advance now like like i mean tyler hero got extended a year ago um you know pool all these guys they get they get extended and it's not even a question and i personally believe that you should just take care of your own players and i think that you should do right by a guy like maxi who is you know a great young player who everyone in the city loves and he's your future and blah 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 but Daryl Morey is a sicko and he doesn't really think in the same way that, uh, you know, maybe fans or other front offices do. And I, at first I was like, what are we doing? Are we going to trade him for Damian Lillard? Like mm-hmm. these were the thoughts that were going through my head. I didn't really understand what the process was here. But the more I've had to talk myself into it, the only thing that I can kind of think of in terms of. Well, first off, like you said, like free agency doesn't really exist, and I would I would hate for Maxi to get hurt and not get the money that he deserves because I mean, at a minimum, he deserves that Desmond Bain contract. I think that that's probably mm-hmm. the kind of the five year, two hundred million dollar extension that Bain got is something that Maxi should be you know aiming for uh, next offseason and he should get. But I I do think like I mean we're seeing it now with Austin Reeves where like teams didn't even want to throw a bag at Austin Reeves and it was like half as much as Tyrese Maxey is going to make. And like, we all knew Austin Reeves was worth at least, I mean, maybe, maybe a few months ago, we weren't thinking that he was worth a hundred million, but it was like just shy of a hundred million. And like, if you're a team like the Spurs, sure. Why not? But the more I think about this, I think it's actually less about, it's less about signing guys in free agency, which funny enough, someone did point out to me, there are two guys that no one's really talking about in terms of free agents next offseason because they have player options, but that's Kawhi Leonard and Paul George. Yeah. And they because they're not true free agents and and with their injury history, maybe they opt in and 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 figure out a new deal or whatever. But I know Zach Lowe's talked about it plenty on his podcast where he's like, hey, by the way, neither of those guys have been extended, and one of them is already eligible and the other one's eligible in a few weeks. Like, isn't that kind of weird? So Maybe that that would be the funny long game uh, if Maury were playing that with the Harden <laughs> Clippers situation. Yeah. Sixers uh, fans, I, if you love your stars getting injured in the playoffs, 
<laughs> well, all right, so we're going to trade hard into the Clippers. He's going to blow everything up, and then we're going to sign one of uh, Kawhi or Paul George. But in reality, like you said, I don't think the Sixers get free agents, even if it's a, you know, like they look at what just happened with Fred Van Fleet in the Rockets, and they say, well, maybe we could get Siakam because <laughs> who knows? I don't know. Like, Nurse and him kind of had a weird relationship from what I understand and I also know that Joel and him, like, I don't, they don't really seem to be, like, that close. Like, like Siakam hangs out with Giannis. He doesn't hang out with Embiid. And, like, I, I don't, I think that there might be somewhat of a mutual respect, but they've also kind of had a weird, tenuous relationship over the years, it seems like. So I'm not sure that. You mean that, apart from Siakam breaking Embiid's face or just related to that? Just in general, like, going back to that 18 19 season, they were, like, getting into it during the. Now, look, this is competitive stuff. Guys do it. And off the court, they're like, oh, you know, Cameroon, home country, mm-hmm. whatever. But like, I don't think that they're like the best of friends is my point. I don't think that Joel's recruiting him necessarily, even though that would be a fantastic get, obviously. And I know that it would probably crush you and Raptors fans. But uh, but but what I'm trying to get at here is I actually think that they looked at this offseason and they saw what happened with guys like John Collins, who, you know, look, say what you will about John Collins, but like he he's much better than what the Hawks got back in return for him. They got a second round pick in Rudy Gay's expiring contract that they flipped. And I think that they looked at what Ainge did and what the jazz did. And they said, okay, so Atlanta wanted to get out of ahead of this new CBA and get off the Collins contract. Right. Well, what happens a year from now when teams are actually in the middle of the new CBA and they have all these contracts on their books and their priorities might be different a year from now than that what they are right now. So the two guys that I keep bringing up and, and they're the ones that make the most logical sense to me are Zach Levine and Jeremy Grant, because Jeremy Grant signed this extension uh, and then Damian Lillard asked out a few days later. And it's a massive contract that I don't really think that has a ton of value on a team like the Blazers, uh, but who knows? Maybe they want to compete and he'll just be happy there. But if a year from now they decide to move on and you can just absorb that into your salary cap space and get a good player like Jeremy Grant, and yeah, maybe it's an overpay similar to the Tobias Harris contract, but I think that Grant is a little bit more of what the Sixers are looking for and he makes less money than Tobias did and a much smaller percentage of the cap. And then on the other side, you have a guy like Zach Levine who... Look, I I know that they're keeping Zach Levine, but like Vucevic is saying, like, this is probably the last chance with this core that we'll have. And, uh, you know, it seems like that relationship, even going back to before he signed his extension with Chicago, has been kind of weird. And I think that they probably view it like, all right, let's sit on our sit on what we have, try to create as much flexibility. We'll get 20 more million in cap space. Uh, with Tyrese Maxey not getting extended right now because his cap holds like 18 million next year. And then we'll have like 50 to 60 million in space. We can try to take on one or two contracts and then build out the rest of the team after that. Now it's a risk. Certainly. Like I, I, like I said, I would just take care of my guys, but that's the only thing I can think of in terms of guys that they could be targeting a year from now that they could get via trade because they're going to be the only good competitive playoff level team that will have cap space. Like this doesn't really ever happen anymore where these teams that are in the thick of a playoff race or, or, you know, they're competing, they have an MVP on their team. They also have cap space. So that's the only thing I could possibly think of. No, I think that's all really well said. And I, I, again, I totally understand the logic behind it, but we also 
early in the episode, we're talking about the human element of all of this. Yes. And that's something that Daryl Morey has notably struggled with in his career as an executive. And I think that needs to be considered here as well. But again, maybe this has all sort of been worked out in a back room somewhere and Tyrese Maxey is totally fine with it. Even, even so, like you mentioned, it's still a risk and there are a lot of moving parts, right? Like even opening up that level of space requires them to renounce Tobias, who has been overpaid, but has still been a valuable contributor to the team. One that, as you mentioned, has a distinct lack of wings. And you're sort of doing that with the hope or the expectation, I guess, that you're going to be able to maybe absorb a contract or sign a guy in free agency that's going to be able to replace him. I do think ultimately Maxi is going to get paid and, you know, more than likely he'll get paid by the Sixers. So I think it will take care of itself, but you just never know with these things so you never know and also like I, like the the other point that someone brought up to me is like the Sixers have no assets other than Tyrese Maxey like Maxey is the only guy yeah. that is left and there's neither had Jaden Springer come up yeah exactly we, well yeah you know no disrespect to Paul Reed who I love but mm. um <laughs> uh I don't I don't think that he has a, a ton of of trade value but but the thing that someone kind of pitched to me was, well, if you have no assets and you have, you, we have one future pick available that's years out. We have, we can trade our 24 pick, but only at the draft next year. And you have nothing like Tobias doesn't have a ton of trade value around the league right now. Harden doesn't have a ton of trade value. And then the rest of the team is like an expiring D'Anthony Melton, whatever, like, you know, good player, but like how much trade value does he really have? Then you look at, it and you go the only way we can get assets is if we get the cap space next summer like that is the asset is that right. we can take on contracts we can kind of have a little bit more flexibility that's the only way that i can really see the uh see the pl the plan that i'm skeptical of but another thing that someone did bring up to me uh is they have the t next offseason they'll have their 24 first round pick they'll have their Third, they'll have their 29 first round pick and their 31 first round pick. And then if they're to trade James Harden and get one or two, probably one first round pick back in that, then you have four first round picks and salary cap space, possibly close to two max slots. So that's the only way that I can see it. But like I said, I've been sold this stuff so many times, like the six, like even like not just the process, but like after the process, like when we hired, uh, Colangelo and we had two max slots for the summer and we yep. ended up with nothing. <laughs> uh, you know, they eventually traded for Jimmy Butler, but that was kind of a separate thing in the season. They traded for Tobias Harris as well. So like, the, like I said, like I, I'm just skeptical of any sort of kind of plan. I kind of view it as like snake oil salesman type stuff when you're trying to sell me on this, but Joel, they, from everything I've heard, Joel trust Maury and, and, and the plan. So I guess that's the only thing that really matters. Yeah, and I mean, people can say the clock is ticking, I guess, on his time in Philly. He's got three more years left on his deal and then a $59 million player option in 2026-27. Like, there is time. Uh, even if, you know, in the NBA these days, there's never quite as much time as it seems like there is. Um, I'm closer to being on your side of, like, their window is closed, but... I want to hold out some hope because I just want better for Joel. I think like he has let himself down in a lot of situations. And I do think, you know, at a certain point he has to wear a lot of the disappointments 
of this franchise because he's the one common denominator. Like if you look at all these years when they've had pretty successful regular seasons and haven't gotten past the second round, like a lot has changed, you know, different sets of role players, different co-stars have come and gone Two coaches, two GMs. He's been there through it all. And he has, whether you want to chalk it up to injuries or anything else, consistently seen his level drop considerably in the playoffs. He has to wear that, but I, I keep saying, I've said it over and over again, he has a monumental playoff run in him. I just want to see it happen eventually, and I would love to see it happen in Philly. So I'm I'm keeping the candle burning, and I don't know how it's going to happen, but uh, I just hope that it does. So, Well, look, when we're sitting here a year from now and the Miami Heat have struck out on Damian Lillard in the trade for Joel Embiid, <laughs> oh, I will be... Uh... I will be. You will be talking uh, yourself into Tyler Hero. <laughs> I'm tell. I'm telling you. You know, <laughs> the Kentucky backcourt Maxi in here. Oh God, I'll be talking about tanking for Cooper Flag if that is if that is the case. Um, oh, yeah, if we're enough. trading Joel, like I said, I, first off, when you trade an MVP, regardless of whatever's happened with him in the playoffs, if you trade an MVP, you're in for a long haul of. Probably misery ahead, I would imagine. But if that is the case, I would like them to at least strategically try to tank in 25 or 26 for uh, Cooper Flag or, or Cam Boozer. But but I'm getting ahead of myself. A little bit. Um, is there, before before we sign off here, like if you're thinking about this team next season, okay, first of all, how, how do you think this is all going to end? Um, <laughs> I, I really have no idea. But if I had to guess, I do think Harden shows up. I think he plays because he wants his money, and I think that he he dogs it like he always does. And there's even more controversy publicly about the you know the league might get involved just because this will be the third time Harden has done this uh, in the past few years, and they don't. Honestly, I don't really think they want that look. And like my my podcast co-host Sam has basically said time and time again, like he thinks that the league would love to make an example of James Harden because Mm -hmm. Harden has been the guy. Look, he's the best guy at getting his way of, like he said, he thrives in, in the chaos and the drama. And I think that we're, we're, we have a long road ahead involved with a lot of that. And uh, the only way I could see the Sixers giving in and trading him anytime before the trade deadline is one of two things. One, a team gets desperate and offers something legit, uh, a team that maybe gets off to like a bad start or something. And two, uh, Joel finally goes to, to Maury and is like, all right, let's end this. Like, this is ridiculous. What are we doing here? So I do think he's going to play because I don't think it's like the Simmons situation. Like, I think that the, uh, with the new CBA and the way that Harden kind of goes about his business, I think he's going to get his money and he's not going to sit out games, but you might want him to sit out games compared to what is going to happen. That's, that's what he wants, right? Probably yeah. is like he, if he is going to show up, he's going to do it in such a way where he's like, Oh man, you're going to wish that I was still sitting out basically. Right. But right. I don't know. Or maybe, you know, him and Daryl hash it all out over a glass of James Harden's finest grape. Right. Who's to say? But okay, so let's assume he doesn't play uh, or is like, you know, functionally irrelevant to the Sixers roster and like their hopes of competing this coming season. Nick Nurse is in here as head coach. The team's going to have, you know, a lot of the same pieces, but maybe something of a different look without their starting point guard there. 
what do you think they're going to look like and what do you want them to look like? Is there some kind of like a tactical tweak or a style of play that you feel like could get the most out of a group that is going to be running uphill? Well, I think that <laughs> at a minimum, Nick Nurse runs plays. <laughs> like, <laughs> regard, uh, well, like how, he how has, much Raptors have you watched over the last couple of years? Look, all I'm saying is I have seen more plays on Twitter clips run, uh, whether it's like hammer sets or mm. whatever. Like, I'm not saying that he's like uh, an innovative offensive genius. But at a minimum, he's not just let's roll the ball out and kind of let the stars kind of figure out what uh, what to do. He's going to at least try to instill some sort of structure in the offense. And Doc Rivers, even though I don't think Doc was at fault this past season, like I think that Doc did a fine job. I thought that he, especially when guys were in and out of the lineup, uh, had a, a pretty decent coaching season. And outside of game six and seven, when the Celtics made adjustments and he had no, no idea what to do, I thought he was even fine in the playoffs. I don't think that it, he was at fault, but at a minimum, I think that nurse, I think that nurse should hopefully bring in, like I said, more plays, more structure, more ideas than what Doc did. Cause Doc is kind of just like roll the ball out, trust your stars, let them do whatever they want to do. And, uh, you know, w whatever happens, happens. Uh, I hope that I, I honestly just hope that it's similar to two years ago when, uh, Simmons was out of the lineup. And even though that team also lost in the second round, that was a really fun season. For, to be a Sixers fan, because uh, outside of the drama, you had, uh, like we said, the maxi leap. We had a ton more kind of different. We had to get more creative because we just didn't have nearly as much talent on the team. Um, I would imagine that this team is going to be, I, I don't think that they have the personnel that the Raptors had to be able to do. You know, I know you guys have talked a lot about how, how nurse loves to put pressure on the ball and get out running and, and create a bunch of turnovers. And I think part of that was due to the fact that the Raptors personnel on offense was very limited. And then on defense was, was very, you know, dynamic. I don't think they have quite that level of defensive talent, but I would hope to see, especially when you have guys like Maxi who you want to get out running even though Joel is your best player and and he's you know a more slow pace player I would love to see them kind of be more aggressive on the defensive end and generate as many run out opportunities as possible uh because I I just think that if you're going to unlock uh, some of the younger guys on the team that have kind of struggled in half court settings uh, like Tyrese or not like Maxi, like Springer and Paul Reed and stuff like that. I would love to see the team try to go a little bit younger and more athletic, uh, even though some of their personnel like Patrick Beverly and and PJ Tucker and Tobias Harris are, are certainly getting up there in terms of. Uh, of age, but that's what I would just like to see is just like more ball pressure on defense, more actual plays being run in the half court on offense and, and just creativity. Like that's the thing that the Sixers like as much as Brett Brown had his shortcomings as a coach, he at least tried to get creative with what the team would run. And the Sixers just really did not have any of that during the doc rivers years. Yeah, it's going to be an interesting season in Philly, to say the least. Uh, looking forward to watching how it all unfolds. But in the meantime, this was great. Thank you so much for taking the time, Trill. And uh, I'll give you the floor to plug all your shit before we get out of here. 
Awesome. So thank you for having me. It was a lot of fun. Glad to be back on on uh, podcasting again, especially on on this show. Love the show. Uh, you know, Ball, YouTube, Spotify, Apple, wherever you get your podcasts. Um, you can sign up for our Patreon if you like those as well. We're almost at 500 Patreon subscribers, which is amazing. And then uh, also we do streams on playback. So we'll be watching games during FIBA. We'll be watching uh, NBA games this season, obviously. And and mainly I'll be uh, you know crying about the Sixers. So check it out. <laughs> Uh, yeah, I, I uh, cannot recommend all of that content enough. Whether you are a fan of the Sixers or not, if you just enjoy good quality NBA content and having a laugh, check out You Know Ball. And uh, with that, I think we're going to sign off here. I am going to be back with another guest at some point next week. And then after that, we'll be back to our regularly scheduled programming with myself and Joseph Cacharo on the mics sorry again for the long hiatus but uh you know it's off season there hasn't been much to talk about we'll we'll get back in the swing of things very soon so thank you all for listening for trill bro dude for an absent joseph Cacharo. i'm joe wolf on pound the rock 